Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hey there. This is Jose Ignacio Alfaro, producer of Are We Still Talking About This? In this episode, Jessica and Adam speak with author Melissa Phoebos. In the memoir Whip Smart, Melissa writes about her experiences as a dominatrix and a heroin addict. In her essay collection, Abandon Me, she writes about obsessions, love affairs, a sea captain father, and a Rilke. Links to Melissa's work, as well as other content and topics discussed, can be found in the episode description. Enjoy! Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. super weird to record your own book especially when there's like it's really personal and there's lots of sex in it and it's just you know you I'm using the second person to create emotional distance right now it's just me (laughs) and this dude who I've never met (laughs) and a thick wall of glass and I just it like was increasingly it felt like a very very long-winded emotional striptease. It was very strange. Uh, And also the microphone is so sensitive that it picks, like you can't even really move. And I was always recording in the mornings. And so I would like eat a granola bar and go in and he would, uh, he kept interrupting me to tell me that my stomach was making noises and he could hear it oh, in the audio. Nice. So if you hear a gurgling in the audiobook, it's um, not going to make the performer feel self conscious at all. It. Brought to you by Granola. He was yeah. like, Yeah, sorry. Yeah. It did it again. Yeah. Okay. Uh, how many days did it take? Uh, I think it was like three or four days. So, so just three or four days of being emotionally excoriated as the man listened to your stomach? Yeah. I mean, That's it fun. was also sort of good right before your book comes out because it's already been usually a year or so since you worked on it and it feels sort of distant. And so to sort of go through and say every single word out loud felt, I felt really close to it again by the time it came out and I had to be talking about it. So it was a a good exercise. You know, when you sort of work through something and you metabolize it psychologically and you heal from it, it loses its power, right? And it doesn't become flat, but it just sort of recedes back into the landscape of of your psyche the way that non-traumatic things do. You know, for me, in order to successfully do with language and, you know, the kind of art that I make, um, I have to, there has to be an element of catharsis. Like I have to work it over so well that I inevitably, at least to some degree, heal from it. And and so when I'm done, it really feels like I'm done. You know, not like I'm just done writing it, but I'm sort of, I can put the experience away. It sounds like exposure therapy. Sometimes yeah. uh, when I worked in a sexual abuse treatment clinic with kids, 
uh, part of what you work with them at the very end is they retell the story of what happened. Mm -hmm. So they're there in a room and they rewrite it. And hopefully mm -hmm. at that point, by the time they're finished writing it, not only do they feel better, but then they present it um, to a family member. And it's called a trauma narrative. And that's kind of yeah. supposed to be their little capstone. Yeah. So it's good to hear that that, that that might actually kind of work. Yeah, no, that that is a, um, a really accurate description of of a really sort of fundamental part of writing for me is fitting it all into a narrative that makes sense and and a corrective narrative too although it's it's earned right you can't just say it's different that's denial but if you really sort of go back through and and create a diorama of it like like you would in a therapy session and walk back through and recover your feelings and sort of go through the whole process then i do think you get to change the story of your relationship to it you write about a lot of your relationships mm -hmm. um how do you uh, sort of navigate boundaries. Mm. Uh, it, that's been an evolution <laughs> over the years. I think when I was younger, I had a much more kind of mercenary relationship to it where I was like, well, you know what I do. Right. <laughs> I'll do it to you. Right. Um, and as I've gotten older and more responsible in the ways that I relate to other people and the ways that I love other people or no longer love other people, my relationship to that has changed a lot, too. And so now, you know, at the beginning of my my current relationship, my partner and I talked about it. And I was writing about us very early into our relationship, like within a few months. And I just I just show it to her. You know, I let people pick their their names. <laughs> is she a writer? Can I? Ask? She is a writer. So she must understand. Yeah. And I, I you know, it's hardest with people who aren't. I don't think they have to be writers, but it's a lot to ask of someone who doesn't translate their experience into another form to right. under, to be able to differentiate between the way that I live and the way that I create art about it. Um, I work with a lot of comedians. A lot of comedians, you know, if you're dating a comedian, you're going to be a butt of their jokes. And then there's always a role, you know, oh, I won't make a joke about you. But then that's also not fair. You know, yeah. I, I don't date comics because I don't want to be part of their act. I and I don't want to limit them. It. You know, yeah. so it's not fair. So to a writer, so you know what's worse. I'm sure. I'm sure. Maybe not. You dated someone who's like, "Are you going to write about me?" That's mm -hmm. the gross. It's happened. It's totally happened. Or and I've had people assume I would write about them uh, <laughs> and had to be like, be like, be like, "Sorry, yeah. sweetie, this isn't really yeah on that level." But I've also had a lot of people be like, "Please don't write about right. this." That's a and compliment. I, you know? I mean, in some ways, I, I wouldn't want. It's that. like a roast. It's being roasted, right? You'll be roast. <laughs> I think that you know, people love like love the affair. idea of it a lot more than they like the experience of it because. People can't see beyond their own self-conception, but you can. You can see the parts of them that they can't see, and, and that's sort of the essence of humiliation, I think. And so when people say to me, as they have, you can write about anything about me you want, what they aren't saying is you can write about the parts of me that I'm not yet aware of because that feels so incredibly vulnerable. And 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 I've learned to have a lot of um, empathy for that, and, and there are definitely certain subjects. And, you know, I saw my mother recently and she'll stop before she tells me a story and she'll be like, this is in the no column. Like, you can't ever write about this. And I'll be like, okay, I won't. I won't. And I think in the past I would be like, no promises. I think when I was younger, just had this, like, I'm an artist. I'm a writer. It's, this is my job. It's what I do. Sorry, you know? Um, and and I, I have now hurt enough people whom I love and experienced and really sort of absorbed the consequences of that, that I know it's not always worth it, right. you know? And so I think, you know, there I make choices that I know are going to be hurtful to other people, but only 
But I, I take those decisions very, very seriously. Writing is a thing that I do with complete privacy. And the experience that other people have of a memoir is that it's incredibly public, that you're, you're, you're being seen, right? But for me, the whole process of it is something that I do completely alone. I mean, more alone than anything else, you know? Writing is, is it's like a vacuum, the space that I go into. And, and the conversation that I have with myself in the early stages of writing um, and the way that I sort of think on the page, I am, I'm just more alone with myself than I ever am, right? And so when I complete that process, that's one thing, right? And then putting it out into the world and having other people perceive it as a conversation I'm having with them is this really dramatic transition for me, you know? And, I, you know, especially with my first book, I, I had no idea what to expect. Like intellectually, I could sort of project and imagine it, but I had no idea what it would be like to have a conversation about things that I had never spoken aloud to anyone because I put things in that book that I had never even said to my therapist ever. Yeah. Um, and sort of in many ways it's a gift and a curse that that aloneness that I feel when I'm writing, uh, you would think that it would be corroded by publishing things so many times and having that happen that I would – but by some – miracle it isn't and I still can sort of draw that curtain and have that conversation with myself and and believe the promise that I don't ever have to show it to anyone what's the book tour like I think the first time around it was it was pretty rough and I thought I was so tough and I just now I think back and I was just like the squishiest little like sea anemone out there in the world. And I think I I have learned a lot and I and I I don't have that experience really anymore. And part of that is luck and part of it is that I know how to deflect and set boundaries with strangers in ways that send them away. Um, but the first time around, I did not. And I and I really sort of went into the experience of interacting with readers of my book and people who are just interested in the subject matter the same way that I would have a conversation about those things with someone privately, right? Where where I thought I'm just going to be as honest as I can be and as open-minded as right. I can be. And I really suffered some blows as a, as a result of that. And pretty quickly, I learned how to answer any question with whatever the fuck I wanted to talk about, <laughs> you know, which I think anyone who's been interviewed or written a memoir, probably any sort of public figure at all learns how to do that really quickly. This is sort of random, but Adam and I were speaking about this during lunch. Do you think it's weird when people journal? We're like, do write writers don't journal? Um, I have some friends that journal, and I thought mm -hmm. it was kind of creepy for some reason. <laughs> I was like, that's so creepy. I'm journaling right now. <sighs> well, I think that people probably mean different things when they say that, right. you know, because uh, I don't use journaling as a no. verb, right? And I think that it's gotten a bad rap in many ways, too, because, you know, writers are so petrified of being confused for journalers or diarists and particularly memoirists because people are always saying offensive stuff to us, implying that we're, like, trying to publish our diaries. Um, which is an insane idea. Which is totally insane. Yeah. Could like, you say, like, journaling is like the poor man's memoirist? Yeah, I think it's a totally different yeah. practice, right? And what I often... Um, you know, like I write three pages in a specific notebook every single morning, but it serves it's, – it's a totally different practice than, 
than my writing. You know, it's like what I use to sort of like flush out the pi- like pipes, you know, like you let the water run for a while and the brown stuff comes out and then you get some clear water. And also for me, it's a really useful life tool because I have a terrible memory and I'm a memoirist. And so I often will just use it as a way to sort of go over the previous day and think, comb through and record what happened and um, sift through one to figure out how I feel about things. Like, it, was I an asshole to anyone? Do I, am I angry at anyone? Like, it's it's if I don't have built-in mechanisms in my life to reflect on what's going on inside of me, then I miss it completely. Yeah. So for me, it, it works as that tool. But I also go back constantly because I often create a timeline if I'm writing a personal essay, and I go back to my note because I have like shelves of notebooks. I've been doing this for years, and that way I can sort of see what the dates of things were. Part of the reason I think it's so crazy when people accuse memoirists of, of journaling or it's just like a mm-hmm. diary is, is, oh, in your first essay and Abandoned Me, it's meticulously, meticulously constructed. Yeah. Like the idea that anyone could just come out and write that is, yeah. is cute to me. Yeah. Like I'm like, I'm glad yeah. people think that in a way. But uh, you had a yeah. line in there that was fresh to me because when I, when I heard it, I was like, wow, this might be the best encapsulation of my own childhood that I've never been able to articulate, but that's been articulated for me. I'm not going to repeat it back because I don't remember what it was. But the idea was uh, (laughs) you can feel loved and lucky, but it's not the same as being happy. Mm -hmm. So thank you for that one. That was like one that I think I was trying to put together in my little Mm -hmm. head my entire life. And then I read it and Mm -hmm. I was like, oh, that's one of those truths. Thank you. I mean, you're welcome. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, no, I don't even really respond to people who who talk about memoir that way. And I don't even think that I don't know, just writing writing our narratives are is an incredibly powerful act not to be dismissed and uh literary art is it is its own practice. It's a totally yeah. different thing. You know what I mean? It's like yeah. drawing a doodle like in your notebook and then calling a mural or, or what, you know what I mean? It's, yeah. I mean, and I think, it, you know, it's tricky. I, I, I can appreciate that it's hard for people to sort of recognize because writing is something that we do all, we all do all the time. Um, well, I mean, we all produce you, words. But, yeah, yeah, it drives me crazy <laughs> yes. when people, it's like. I hate it. I have such respect for <laughs> for writing and writers and memoirs that if anyone says, oh, I'm working on my memoir, I'm just go, I say, you know what, fuck off. It, I mean, like, it goes back to the difference yeah. between journaling and writing. Journaling yeah. to me, because when we would tell people in therapy, just journal for 10 minutes, it's a mm-hmm. completely selfish act that's about mm-hmm. yourself. And yeah. that's mm-hmm. it. When, when you're writing, ultimately, you do want that connectivity with others. So you can give something. Right. Right. To me, that I appreciate on the train, and then I started crying when you started talking about the Velveteen Rabbit because I totally blocked that it's out. The tr- most tragic. Oh, that story. traumatized the yeah. shit out of me as a kid, and I just it hadn't really thought is. about it for. Well, yeah, yeah, it really is. But like, I do. I, I mean, I value both of those practices, and I think writing memoir requires both of them, right? Like, um, there was a social psychologist in the eighties, James James Pennebaker, who um, basically discovered sort of the therapeutic power of journaling, and he had. These He did this um, study where he had his subjects write nonstop for, it was like 15 minutes per day for four days in a row about a traumatic subject, basically without stopping. And it had nothing to do with aesthetics. Then he tracked sort of those people and their mental health and uh, general happiness over the course of the next year, along with a control group who had written about a non-traumatic topic. And the people who had written for 15 minutes, just like for one hour total, 
over the course of the entire following year, went to less doctor's visits, were overall more satisfied in their relationships. Like it had this tremendous effect on them that was shocking and and that was replicated in many studies after that. And so whenever people are like, whoa, writing in your diary, I'm like, it could save your life. (laughs) And then also making art is a completely different process. Like you have to, it does, there is an element of that to it, but but I'm making art. I think you have a... There are elements of your life that seem like they're storybook elements, not storybook in a positive way at all, but just uh, <laughs> extremely compelling. I mean, but I, I get the sense that even if you didn't have a disappearing sea captain father, you probably mm-hmm. still would have been a writer. I think probably there's, I don't think this is true for everybody, but, um, you know, like you said of yourself earlier, uh, I'm just sort of extreme. Like, I'm really obsessive. I am very sort of habitual. Um, I have a really hard time making myself do things, although within a very small sphere, um, I can work, like, dangerously hard at the things that I can. And so there aren't there weren't that many options for me, you know? And and ultimately, I'm really glad for that, that I always sort of knew the thing that I needed to be doing my whole life is like this intricate economy of like obsession and habit and like treats, you know, where there are just things that I like, I, I eat the same. And we know when I was younger, it was like, you know, drugs or like bad relationships or smoking cigarettes or candy or whatever. And I was just like living till the next gummy worm or, you know, high or whatever. And now it's just like, I eat the same things all the time or I like, I'll get obsessed with a TV show or I'll go, I get very into like, like over my winter break, I've been like getting up in the morning and I'll write for a while. And then I reward myself with like a snack and then I write for a little bit longer and then I go for my run. And from the outside, it looks just like a healthy adult human living her life. But inside, it's like, I can feel the way that my sort of routine and habits and my little carrots that I dangle for myself really sort of serve the purpose of all of my, that all my addictions did when I was younger, you know, like I have to sort of feed the beast. But now the beast is satisfied with like a particular flavor of protein bar. That's when I struggle with my own rigidity, which is not nearly as productive as yours. (laughs) But, uh, you know, I'll have the realizations where I'll I'll look back on my day and be like, you are living like you are in a mental institution. (laughs) You get your meds here, you get your meal here, you work for these blocks, you go outside and take... So I tried mushrooms for a while and uh, it kind of worked. You tried mushrooms? Mushrooms. uh, Like psychedelic? Yes. He's from LA. This is very normal. In LA, everyone's microdosing. Or macrodosing. Sometimes they come in delicious chocolate, so it's very hard to tell how much... A friend of mine recently told me she was like, oh, we went away for the weekend and we all did mushrooms. And I was like, what? What are you, 20? I, yeah. to, I was yeah. like, <laughs> I think I was 15 the last time I did. Yeah, It's like my, I, I mean, I'm sober, so it's like not going to work out for me. Uh, you but, can try Ibogaine. What's Ibogaine? Um, it is used as a recovery tool often for heroin addicts and others. I, I don't think you should seriously do that. No, that might I'm not, not be, going to, but I'm but, curious um, about it, it, it can is. be tremendously effective in, um, and it's not a, my understanding of it, it's a psychological breakthrough, kind of like ay- ayahuasca is another right. one that can help yeah, people Yeah, I mean, uh, uh, you know, ecstasy was first discovered by like couples therapists, wasn't yeah. it? But I also think that sobriety is a whole other kind of drug too. Yeah. Like I remember like the first I time I was no like, first time I, I was in a relationship with someone who was sober, it was a completely different kind of relationship than any other relationship I'd How ever been different? in. Well, the person was a little more obsessive 
(laughs) in some ways there was there was that addiction so Mm -hmm. the addiction was somewhere else Mm -hmm. right yeah i've been um writing about that i was writing about that this morning because the essay i'm writing right now is about i spent six months totally celibate um and like no flirting no intriguing no nothing yeah. at all which might you know it's like not a big deal for people who have who have oh, experienced it involuntarily but for yeah. me i had uh-huh. i had never i hadn't been single since i was a teenager and i had never not had like anything going on um so it was uh and it was amazing to me how i once i sort of extricated myself from anything like that it became so transparent to me when other people were getting high off of people and yeah. sort of the flirtation or when someone would approach me and start talking to me and because I wasn't engaging on that level it was like talking to a drunk person or right. or something you know it was really like a zombie it was really um really really clear to me how much we use each other as 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 substances in that way and i think for sober people a lot of times especially if it's if it's a newer thing if they're recently sober like they can just completely turn um all of that energy towards other people and use other people like drugs definitely Mm -hmm. Uh, was it part of the recovery process for you no i'd been sober at the time for um for 12 years and so yeah it was yeah no i think um I had just, I was in this really sort of harrowing, intense, like emotionally abusive relationship for two years. And I was just, it just knocked me on my ass. And I thought, how did I make this choice being a decade sober and having been in like many healthier relationships? And right after it, I thought, okay, I'm going to take a break and like recover, right? And instead of that, I got into like five mini relationships and had an affair with this married one. It was just like messy. And I thought, whoa, like, okay, I don't, I've never been, as someone with a very addictive personality, it's much harder for me to use something in moderation than it is for me to commit to abstinence. And so I thought, okay, I'm going to have to do what I know how to do, which is just like stop completely because I can't measure, I can't sort of be reasonable about so this. Zero, one hundred. Yeah, and so so I just stopped, and I and I and I did it for three months, and then it was I was so, it was honestly like the best three months of my life, and I decided to extend it for another three months. Um, not not to be overly graphic, but was this no masturbating? No, no I masturbated, and and the weird thing was by the end of it, like in the last three months, I barely masturbated. It was like I, I had never been fully present with myself. I had always been orienting myself around another person or other people. Even if I was sort of using them, I was still other focused in this, in a self-centered way, but I was not inhabiting my life as myself. I was always sort of preoccupied with how other people were perceiving me or if they were desiring me or tending to our relationship or troubleshooting a relationship. It was just like constantly toiling in that direction. And when I cut it all out of my life, it was like, all of my other relationships, my relationship to food and exercise and my work and my family and everything else just got to stretch out more. And it was the most um, awake I've ever felt in my life. Were you, I mean, as a, as a former therapist, if I had a, a client tell me that, that would be absolutely amazing. It sounds like you self-actualized by yourself. Like Maslow's pyramid of needs <laughs> somehow managed to reach the, the pinnacle 
after yeah. 20 years own, of therapy I mean, and 10 wow. years of sobriety. Still nobody gets there. That's pretty, that's pretty <laughs> it amazing. It was really, it was, hear. I mean, it was, um, it was long overdue and it was, it was really, really helpful. And, and I, and I did also did a lot of work during that time too. Like I wrote a really long inventory of everyone I'd ever been in a relationship with and sort of detailed all of my patterns and behaviors and then shared them with a friend and, um, apologized to a bunch of people and sort of re- made a list of like I I basically articulated who I wanted to be in relationships and what I never wanted to do again and sort of a list of guidelines for myself. Um, and within this makes it sound really sort of transactional or materialistic, but but it really is what happened that like within two months after I finished that whole process, I met my partner that I'm now engaged to. And it was like the healthiest relationship I mean, of my life. Sound, <laughs> yeah, that doesn't sound transactional to me at all. It sounds like... <laughs> no, it sounds, but it's like, like if you Kung do this, fu. you get well, it's, this. It's like the it 36 chamber, have. right? It's like Wu-Tang. Yeah. You have to... Once your Kung Fu gets good enough, you really get to that metaphysical level of, oh, I can understand Yeah, it was now. like... I really badass. was like... It was. I think it was just a piece of work that I was putting off doing for a really long time, and I was like, it was time to pay the piper, so I did. But yeah, I strongly recommend it for. And it's funny because when I did it, I talked to so many people, and they would be like, "Why?" And I and I would tell them like, you know, I've been in relationships my whole life. I've always been sort of oriented to like what other people want from me or who I can be to them or like being wanted or being approved of or whatever. And it was just like I grew so familiar with this look that other people would give me sometimes, where I'd be like, oh. You do, yeah. <laughs> and and I, I was careful never to be like you should do it. But I do like if anybody you're making me want to do it. I'm if anybody, if you have that it. feeling, you can always stop doing it if you don't like it. But it it really how do you totally changed my life? Like what if but what if you're in a relationship? Then you're like, oh, by the way, sorry. <laughs> yeah, I think you have yeah. to not be in in the relationship. I mean, it was funny because I tried mm-hmm. to just do it for a while. I tried to be like just no sex, and then I realized that like the thing, like I wasn't a sex addict, and I. I've never been, but it was like that's not the thing that was disrupting the uh, my ability to sort of be awake in my life. It was it was just like any kind of excitement or intrigue or like oh they like me or like, and I would do these little like rain check postponements where it's like oh I'm celibate right now, but call me in August, you yeah. know. Yeah, and I was cheating. like can't oh that. I can't yeah. like that's cheating, and I actually yeah. had to restart a month later like, because right. I was like this is not, this is not celibacy. No, <laughs> yeah. it reminds me of a thought I had when I was reading uh, Abandon Me, and that was. When you're describing, and I'm not saying this is what you were experiencing at all, but when you were describing the relationship that you had with uh, the married woman and just Mm -hmm. the intensity of it, Mm -hmm. I I took a step back and I wondered to myself, are people, it seems to me that there's a lot of people, and I used to be like this as well, that that, that they gravitate towards those emotional extremes. So Mm -hmm. it might not be the person or the experience, but people need to experience mm-hmm. something intense, no matter what it is, just mm-hmm. for that rush. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, that's a pretty base observation. Why don't people talk about this more? That mm-hmm, there's yeah. kind of chasing the dragon of yeah. this neurochemical excitement yeah. that probably will guarantee that a relationship won't last. Yeah, yeah. I think that that's absolutely true. And I think it's, I mean, it just gets lost, which is really tragic on some level. It really gets lost in this sort of capitalist fantasy that we're fed since we're children of this like romance and completely losing yourself in another person, which is actually hell. It's not yeah. romantic or fun except for the first like five minutes. And then it's just like torture and, and you know, you feel degraded by it. And um, And I think for me, like, I definitely identify with that. I am that type. I assume everyone in this room probably is. And... Uh, and for me, it's 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 not been about sort of like 
ending or annihilating that part of me, but figuring out ways that are that don't create wreckage for me or other people that I can sort of meet my own needs. And for me, that's like through writing and through exercise and through like being busy and uh, reading or there are so many things you can do obsessively that don't hurt you or other people. And I've really just sort of filled my life with those things. And so I don't do it with all of the stuff that I've ever done it with in the past that is harmful to me or other people, which is like substances and, you know, human relationships for me now feel like such a source of stability and comfort. And like it, they are the things like my relationships with other people are these ongoing things that I nurture that keep me tethered to the ground. And if I use them to get high, I would no longer have that comfort. And I wouldn't if I have a home in them. Right. So it's just um, it doesn't make sense. It's not sustainable. Right. So I, I feel like I've worked really hard to sort of remove that meaning from them and to put it into other things that are more productive so that I can have relationships mean something else to me. Seems like you were doing self-care before it was trendy. Yeah. 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 <laughs> or or I mean, survival it's, as it's Yeah. Known, it's it? helpful. Exactly. Yeah. Like if 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 the way that you um don't take care of yourself is life threatening, it's really motivating. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Oh, thank you. Well, that thank was, you that was so wonderful. Much. I think thank you guys so much. I feel so like awesome. I could talk to you forever. Awesome. 